As you guys know, this is the type of music that I listen to. I mean, drill remixes of classical music is a thing I like. Now, I was going to upload this video and have it premiere on YouTube. Uh, it's been produced by Texanon. Thank you. And um, the odd thing that occurred is that it was blocked globally. And while they claimed that I had copyright for uh, stock music, that I, that I actually pay an annual fee to various places, and they already have the licenses, that it's licensed, the key thing here is that presidential speeches are now subject to copyright. Having said that, there's chatter going on around YouTube right now where they're wiping information in regards to pandemics. What are they getting ready to do? That'll be the topic of the show tomorrow. Um, well, no, it's not. I'm going to rip the Band-Aid off and show you how they're spying. But let's get into this documentary. Please enjoy the show. China, August 1945. The defeat of the common enemy, Japan, finds key areas of China held firmly by the communists. From militarized artificial islands to fighter jets and warplanes, China's heavy presence in the disputed region is putting the U.S. and its allies on notice. The House Select Committee on China is cautioning that the Chinese Communist Party cannot be trusted and must be deterred. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Is it's a big mistake to give an authoritarian regime coercive power over your economy. Provides the leaders of the two countries with an opportunity of meeting in person to seek the normalization of relations between the two countries and also to exchange views on questions of concern to the two sides. China is going to eat our lunch Come on, man. I mean, I, you know, they're not bad folks, folks. But guess what? They're not a they're, they're not, not they're competition for us. In the councils of government, we must car guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizen can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense 
with our peaceful method. doesn't use the bomb and the Americans have to invade Kyushu and suffer casualties and the American people find out he had this bomb and didn't use it, that he will be crucified. The majority of those around Truman urge he deploy it. Pro-bomb people say, look, this is a weapon like any other. I mean, we've created a new weapon. Let's use it to end the war. The ethics of this destructive weapon are not a priority for Truman. Using an atomic bomb was not going to cross any moral lines that hadn't already been crossed. The attack on Tokyo in March had killed so many people that nothing the atomic bomb could do was going to change the nature of the bombing campaign. Rather than ha having tens of thousands of bombs dropped on a city, this was going to be one bomb. Just hours after the test, the Navy loads the components for the first of two bombs onto the USS Indianapolis. The destination, Tinian, a tiny island in the Pacific where air crews are ready. He had recently arrived at a conference in the Berlin suburb of Potsdam, meeting with Stalin and Churchill, discussing the future of Europe. Truman didn't hesitate. He ordered his commanders to prepare to drop the new bombs on Japan as soon as possible. The British, Chinese, and United States governments have given the Japanese people adequate warning of what is in store for them. Two bombs, a uranium device codenamed Little Boy and a plutonium bomb called Fat Man, were now transported to the Mariana Islands. There, the immensely experienced Colonel Paul Tibbets, leader of the specially trained 509th Composite Group, prepared his B-29. At 2.45 in the morning of August the 6th, Tibbets lifted his plane, named Enola Gay after his mother, off the runway. On board, he was carrying Little Boy. The flight to the target, Japan's fourth largest city, Hiroshima, went without a hitch. At 8 a.m. on a bright sunny morning, Enola Gay approached the city at 33,000 feet. Then at just after 8.15, 
little boy was released. of nearly 13,000 tons of TNT. The temperature beneath the mushroom cloud reached 5,000 degrees centigrade. Thousands of people were instantly vaporized. A bomb was finally released exactly at the designated hour and the explosion occurred as planned. Shock waves leveled buildings up to a five-mile radius. Estimates of the death toll vary hugely. Some put it at 40,000 people, others at 100,000. Many suffered from terrible burns and blistering. Over the course of the following weeks, thousands more people died from radiation poisoning. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws this power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We have spent more than two billion dollars on the greatest scientific gamble in history, and we have won. But the greatest marvel is not the size of the enterprise, its secrecy, or its cost but the achievement of scientific brains in making it work. On August the 7th, 1945, President Truman told the world about the bomb and issued Japan with a warning. Let there be no mistake. We shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. They may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. But no Japanese surrender was received. Two days later, on August the 9th, Fat Man was dropped on the major military port of Nagasaki. The plutonium bomb was even more powerful.
In fact, the bomb fell way off target, but it still caused massive destruction. Between 35,000 and 50,000 people are estimated to have died in the explosion. The Japanese government could now have no doubt that they faced a new and horrific weapon. But the question remained, would even this force them to surrender? We are gathered here, representatives of the major warring powers, to conclude a solemn agreement whereby peace may be restored. The terms and conditions upon which surrender of the Japanese imperial forces is here to be given and accepted are contained in the instrument of surrender now before you. Japan accepted unconditional surrender according to the provisions of the Potsdam Declaration. These proceedings are closed. Hello. In the traditional motion picture story, the villains are usually defeated. The ending is a happy one. I can make no such promise for the picture you're about to watch. The story isn't over. You and the audience are part of the conflict. How we meet the communist challenge depends on you. What has happened so far, what is happening now is far from encouraging. Less than 50 years after the communists seized power in Russia, almost a billion people are under their control. On October 1st, 1949, in Beijing's Tiananmen Square, Mao Zedong proclaimed the birth of the People's Republic of China. It was the end of a 30-year civil war. Mao Zedong says, Coexistence with capitalism is impossible. Warfare with these forces is inevitable. From the day Mao takes power, the countries along the Chinese frontier are scenes of constant warfare. Communism feeds on its neighbors. Mao Zedong arrives in Moscow to participate in Stalin's 70th birthday celebration, December 2nd, 1949. The new Moscow-Peking axis poses an ever more ominous threat to the free world. The communist narrator translates. The most vital tasks at the present time are to fight the warmongers, strengthen good neighborly relations between the two great states, China and the Soviet Union, and thanks particularly to the correct international policy of Generalissimo Stalin. In the presidium are leaders of the party and government, representatives of the various Soviet republics, and of the communist and workers' parties abroad. Khrushchev proudly proclaims Stalin, the genius, leader, teacher, father of the nationalities, great industrializer, great collectivizer, creator of Soviet culture,
careful gardener tenderly rearing the human beings in his charge. Four out of every ten of the world's population oppressed. And the conspiracy that is communism is stronger, more determined than ever, growing in the image of its leaders. Nikita Khrushchev says, in this world today, there's a fierce struggle of two ideologies, the communist and the capitalist. And in this struggle, there can be no neutrals. Whether you like it or not, history is on our side. We will bury you. For many people, this was the moment Mao lost touch with reality and turned from a popular leader into a murderous and paranoid dictator. Today, the latest weapons, coupled with the fighting skill of the American soldier, stand ready, on the alert all over the world, to defend this country, you, the American people, against aggression. This is the big picture, an official television report to the nation from the United States Army. Now, to show you part of the big picture, here is Sergeant Stuart Queen. In 1954, there was war in Indochina. Another little war, but it was a real war. Fortunately, this war did not spread into a worldwide conflagration. More recently, the threat of war has shifted to Formosa. How these threatening sparks will be quenched, we do not know. But with our anxious eyes on the east, we must never forget our danger in the west. Here, our protection is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. While our attention has been focused on the East, what has NATO been doing in the West? NATO's banner flies proudly. Since the foundation of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the communists have gained not one foot of new territory in Europe. NATO was founded April 4, 1949, by 12 nations of widely different languages and customs. During its six years, NATO has well proved its power for peace. It is a calm, studious approach to peace. It is a new approach. Never before in history have Europe's rival nations formed such a working alliance. Many different uniforms from many different homelands. NATO land is composed of 14 different nations with a combined army 7 million strong. NATO's buildup is almost done. This achievement required vast effort last year a succession of training exercises conducted throughout Europe. The North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, NATO, obliges the USA and Western Europe to fight to protect every country in the alliance. As the Cold War becomes restless, NATO becomes more than a treaty. We're NATO and the Warsaw Pact. After the war, the Soviet Union began to flex its muscles, installing communist governments in Eastern Europe. In 1948, the USSR toppled a democratic government in Czechoslovakia and then cut off supply routes to West Berlin. The United States and its Western European allies began to get nervous. Do you see what's going on over there with the Soviets? That's not, we don't like that. 
Okay. From Europe. General Eisenhower reports to America, re-emphasizing his belief that we must help Western Europe defend itself. I believe, first, the preservation of free America requires our participation in the defense of Western Europe. Second, success is attainable. Given unity and spirit and action, the job can be done. Third, while the transfer to Europe of American military units is essential, our major and special contribution should be in the field of munitions and equipment. British airborne forces provided the spearhead of the attack in Operation Brown Jug, the biggest exercise yet carried out in Denmark by combined NATO forces. U.S. military units are moved to the front line, the border between Western and Eastern Europe. They learn to work as a team with the Europeans in regular NATO maneuvers. Off the southern shores of Sardinia, British, Italian and American forces take part in a combined assault exercise. NATO bases in Western Europe are supplied with American bombs. The possibility of a nuclear strike is real. By the mid-1950s, U.S. armed forces are stationed in bases from the U.K. to France, Belgium and Germany. All are on 24-hour standby to protect the West from a Soviet invasion. Eisenhower steps up U.S. spending on defense to $24.2 billion. What we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. and cover. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. That's why these children are practicing to duck and cover just as you do in your school. We all know. We have a lot more going on internally as a nation, a lot more. We have a very big struggle for power. But the one thing that I can say is that this FTX scandal, it was so well staged by Goldman Sachs. It's just incredible. Uh, to corner the Bitcoin market, you know, for all those screaming Bitcoin, which is Ethereum, which is the foundation for a lot of other tokens. This was very well staged fraud. Very well staged. Pensions were invested in it too. And this is fake too, because rather than say we spent your money and we don't have it. Oh yeah, we invested it in this crypto and it was a fraud. I'm so sorry, everyone. I apologize for the inconvenience. such a fraud it is such a fraud and so many people are sitting idly saying oh yeah it seems completely legit and yet it was just another script another act in the show 
of this PSYOP. But I'm not talking about psychological operation. I'm talking about SIOP. Which is one of the most detrimental operations that the Department of Defense houses that very few people have seen with their eyes. It was why Eisenhower gave the farewell address that he gave. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening, my fellow Americans. First, I should like to express my gratitude to the radio and television networks for the opportunities they have given me over the years to bring reports and messages to our nation. Three days from now, after half a century in the service of our country, I shall lay down the responsibilities of office as, in traditional and solemn ceremony, the authority of the presidency is vested in my successor. This evening, I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell, and to share a few final thoughts with you, my countrymen. Like every other citizen, I wish the new president and all who will labor with him, Godspeed. I pray that the coming years will be blessed with peace and prosperity for all. Our people expect their president and the Congress to find a central agreement on issues of great moment, the wise resolution of which will better shape the future of the nation. We now stand 10 years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress riches and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interest of world peace and human betterment. Throughout America's adventure in free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace, to foster progress in human achievement, and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among peoples and among nations. To strive for less would be unworthy of a free and religious people. Any failure traceable to arrogance or our lack of comprehension or readiness to sacrifice would inflict upon us grievous hurt, both at home and abroad. Progress toward these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. To meet it successfully, there is call for not so much the emotional and transitory sacrifices of crisis, but rather those which enable us to carry forward steadily, surely and without complaint, the burdens of a prolonged and complex struggle with liberty, the state. 
Only thus shall we remain, despite every provocation, on our charted course toward permanent peace and human betterment. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defenses, development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture, a dramatic expansion in basic and applied research. These and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration the need to maintain balance in and among national programs. Balance between the private and the public economy. Balance between the cost and hoped for advantages. Balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable. Balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual. Balance between actions of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance in progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. The record of many decades stands as proof that our people and their government have, in the main, understood these truths and have responded to them well in the face of threat and stress. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. Of these I mention two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against 
the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. PSYOP S-I-O-P It's not psychological warfare. Operation Q, the atomic test program of the Federal Civil Defense Administration, as seen by June Cowan, reporter. I had to see Operation Q through many eyes, not only my own, but as a reporter through the eyes of the average American man and woman. I arrived at Civil Defense Headquarters the day before the explosion was scheduled to take place and checked in at once with the official who was to brief me about the test. The night of the actual explosion, or rather early in the morning, came at last. On Media Hill, television equipment was ready to bring the test into homes from coast to coast. Reporters, commentators, military and civil defense observers all had a purpose, to study the results of this explosion. At a position a mile forward from Media Hill, the civil defense field exercise group had assembled with their equipment. A small group of civil defense volunteers were to occupy a trench relatively close to ground zero. On Media Hill, where I remained, there was hot coffee, last-minute briefings, and more waiting. But it seemed no time at all before the loudspeaker warned, H minus one minute. Put on your goggles. Observers without goggles must face away from the blast. On the silent desert, the test objects waited. H minus 10 seconds. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. There is one nuclear device in the history of the United States that stands out above the rest. It was the largest ever detonated by the country, and one that surprised even the experts. The codename of the bomb was the Shrimp, but many of us know it by its operation name, Castle Bravo. Much like the other castle tests, this one occurred at Bikini Atoll, and on March 1, 1954, the Castle Bravo test commenced. It was noteworthy for being the first lithium-deuteride-fueled thermonuclear weapon tested by the country. Scientists expected the bomb to produce an explosion of six megatons. However, due to unforeseen reactions from the use of lithium-7, the blast was measured more than double that size, coming in at 15 megatons. From 1951 to 1957, 
multiple tests under the codename Desert Rock attempt to prepare troops to fight this new kind of war. Boots on the ground of an atomic battlefield. Camera crews capture troops piling into trenches just a few thousand yards from ground zero and turn the footage into training films. In 1953, there's still a lot they don't know, especially about the effects of radiation poisoning. For thousands of troops, the desert rock detonations are the ultimate leap of faith. Stationed in trenches right out of World War I, waiting for hours in the Nevada sun for the inevitable countdown to Armageddon. The stage is set for the Desert Rock atomic test in Nevada. Down and stay down. from operations like this prepare troops for both the military tactics and emotional impact of fighting on an atomic battlefield. The biggest value of the operation is for us to prove to ourselves that it can be done and find any weak points in the training. Desert Rock is comprised of five different test operations, each with multiple detonations, 69 in all. More than 50,000 troops participate, guinea pigs in America's new atomic age. As exercise Desert Rock is concluded, initial reactions are, it is possible to utilize an atomic weapon in close support of ground troops in those cases where the conditions surrounding its use are carefully considered. Believe it or not, the plans to build large-scale nuclear weapons did not stop here. Originally, there were plans to build an even larger version of the Tsar Bomba, one that would produce a yield of nearly 100 megatons. Back in 2020, you know, in September, October, when the majority of people had access to get the Hunter Biden laptop, right? refused it. You know, General Flynn wanted nothing to do with it. Sidney Powell was like, eh, I don't think so. And it was just Rudy Giuliani kind of just, all right, what do I do? In the meantime, I've, I published articles in March of 2020 with Hunter Biden emails in there, but you know, no one saw that. So it's so weird. It's because I didn't call it out. I just demonstrated how Chinese North Dakota is and how they do dealings like Hunter Biden. Right, in 2020 of March. The problem is, is that a lot of people have been looking into this laptop that have no idea what it's talking about. Like I see this thing, oh look, what's GhostSec? And it's like, shut up, it's just software, nobody cares. It's not that important. Can we focus on the crimes? Like the crimes that I wrote about. How, you know, he had Qatari agents and people from the State Department ushering documents between embassies, big crime. Colluding over a year on email, over a year. 
There was a thread, and I put it in an article over a year discussing how they're going to smuggle someone from the southern border. These are crimes, okay? Hanging out with the cartels, crimes, right? Plum Island, crimes, lots of them. And while everyone sits there and, oh, no, they get away with things. Don't you understand? People that speak up get their lives destroyed. There are many names that you probably even haven't even heard of, right, that have been destroyed. I mean, look at Julian Assange. Before he was stuck in an Ecuadorian prison, why was he there? They had fake rape charges against him. Everybody knows you are a very strong advocate of freedom of speech, but you've offered $20,000 to help bail him on sex charges, and you're not in favor of sex crimes, obviously. So th th that has got nothing to do with what he's done in WikiLeaks, has it? These allegations of sex crimes. Yeah, I'm sure it has absolutely nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I mean, really, what? I mean, we've lived long enough uh, through enough uh, uh, of, of this kind of deception, these kinds of dirty tricks that governments and corporations play. And um, uh, the issue here is that, that, uh, that if he were any other just normal Brit uh, with the so-called crime uh, that he's been accused of, which I understand isn't, wouldn't actually be a crime if it was committed in Britain, uh, a condom broke, I believe, was, the, uh, was the, uh, the evidence. He hasn't even been charged with a crime. He hasn't been charged with anything. And what is he doing sitting in a jail tonight? Uh, I, I think that's just, it's just absurd and it looks, it looks, bad, on, it looks bad on Britain, frankly, too, that, that your court system is somehow being played by another government, which is probably uh, in cahoots with my government, perhaps your government. Okay. I know a lot of people that worked for the agency. So you know like Bill Binney, when he came out and started speaking up against things, they came and raided him, they destroyed his credibility, even though they couldn't destroy much, right? Um, but anybody that they have, that has spoken up against them, they've destroyed their lives. Just like they did Julian Assange's and many, many other people. Lawfare, that's the weapon of choice you know, for the big boys, right, for the big boys. So, all right, so now it's mainstream. You know, obviously, like I said, in March of 2020, I reported the first crimes, right? The first crimes. The first crimes about China and LNG. And while everyone claims, oh, we have the most pristine, actually, Rudy Giuliani had the exact same one they had. Uh, it was knocked around by, F by the FBI the day after he was raided. I went to his home merged it with the digital copy that I had, um, which extracted more data from his to create an amazing copy. Now, many will say, why now? Well, you know, it's all part of the script. Whatever they're doing here in this construct is part of the script. As expected, the American embassy in London was the target of two factions. The pro-Russians, who are always good for a knock at the Americans, and the ban the bomb people. Petitions were delivered, protesting against the president's blockade of the approaches to Cuba. The CND members were declaring that nothing short of abolishing nuclear arms could prevent another world war. When they sat down to reinforce the argument, they were removed. Busy time for the police.
One man wanted to win it all. The other had everything to lose. Together, their nuclear missiles brought the world to the edge of annihilation. The island of Cuba becomes the center of the world. Fidel Castro says the Russian missiles are for defense, but for others, they are a deadly threat. For 15 days in October 1962, the world is on edge. Will it be a countdown to World War III? October 22nd, 1962, President John F. Kennedy broadcast a special message to the nation from his office in the White House. Here is President Kennedy as he delivered that message bearing on recent events in Cuba. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Upon receiving the first preliminary hard information of this nature, last Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., I directed that our surveillance be stepped up. And having now confirmed and completed our evaluation of the evidence and our decision on a course of action, this government feels obliged to report this new crisis to you in fullest detail. The characteristic of these new missile sites indicate two distinct types of installations. Several of them include medium-range ballistic missiles capable of carrying a nuclear warhead for a distance of more than 1,000 nautical miles. Each of these missiles, in short, is capable of striking Washington, D.C., the Panama Canal, Cape Canaveral, Mexico City, or any other city in the southeastern part of the United States. In Central America, or in the Caribbean area. Additional sites not yet completed appear to be designed for intermediate range ballistic missiles capable of traveling more than twice as far and thus capable of striking most of the major cities in the Western Hemisphere, ranging as far north as Hudson and as far south as Lima, Peru. In addition, jet bombers capable of carrying nuclear weapons are now being uncrated and assembled in Cuba while the necessary air bases are being prepared. This urgent transformation of Cuba into an important strategic base by the presence of these large, long-range and clearly offensive weapons of sudden mass destruction constitutes an explicit threat to the peace and security of all the Americas in flagrant and deliberate defiance 
of the Rio Pact of 1947. Our own strategic missiles have never been transferred to the territory of any other nation under a cloak of secrecy and deception. And our history, unlike that of the Soviets since the end of World War II, demonstrates that we have no desire to dominate or conquer any other nation or impose our system upon its people. Nevertheless, American citizens have become adjusted to living daily on the bullseye of Soviet missiles located inside the USSR or in submarines. In that sense, missiles in Cuba add to an already clear and present danger. But this secret, swift, extraordinary buildup of communist missiles in an area well known to have a special and historical relationship to the United States and the nations of the Western Hemisphere, in violation of Soviet assurances and in defiance of American and hemispheric policy, this sudden clandestine decision to station strategic weapons for the first time outside of Soviet soil is a deliberately provocative and unjustified change in the status quo which cannot be accepted by this country if our courage and our commitments are ever to be trusted again by either friend or foe. The 1930s taught us a clear lesson. Aggressive conduct, if allowed to go unchecked and unchallenged, ultimately leads to war. This nation is opposed to war. We are also true to our word. Our unswerving objective, therefore, must be to prevent the use of these missiles against this or any other country and to secure their withdrawal or elimination from the Western Hemisphere. My fellow citizens, let no one doubt that this is a difficult and dangerous effort on which we have set out. No one can foresee precisely what course it will take or what course or casualties will be incurred. Many months of sacrifice and self-discipline lie ahead months in which both our patience and our will will be tested, months in which many threats and denunciations will keep us aware of our dangers. But the greatest danger of all would be to do nothing. The path we have chosen for the present is full of hazards, as all paths are. But it is the one most consistent with our character and courage as a nation and our commitments around the world. The cost of freedom is always high, but Americans have always paid it. And one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. Not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom here in this hemisphere. And we hope around the world, God willing, that goal will be achieved. Thank you and good night. You would then perhaps use nuclear weapons in connection with the Berlin situation? Yes, we will use nuclear weapons whenever we feel it necessary to protect our vital interests. Our nuclear stockpile is several times that of the Soviet Union. We will use either tactical weapons or strategic weapons in whatever quantities, wherever, whenever it's necessary to protect this nation and its interests.
nuclear weapons had become the central tool of superpower diplomacy. During that 10th September of 1961, the Soviets tested the largest hydrogen bomb the world had ever seen. But they had only about six intercontinental missiles capable of striking the American mainland. I was taken back that, you know, Asia dumped so much money into this, you know, whole thing. And, and the reason I say this, right, is because, uh, you know, the fact that they got the, the, the FIFA bid, because Qatar had no history in the World Cup, right? Until it freaking won its bid in 2010, and it's now 2022, right? Because it's, it's dry, it's hot, it's, it's like who goes to Qatar, right? It's just a small, you know, Middle Eastern little place that's only for rich people and you know it's quite weird so i'm like what is going on here why is asia involved well you know obviously china just signed an agreement saying that oh yeah we're gonna do like an exclusive deal with gas and i'm like oh gosh here we go that was it so there was a lot of controversy <coughs> with um because there was like vote swapping. They were kind of doing backdoor trade deals. This is like right there on top, right? China just came out today. So much corruption. I mean, no one ever proved anything, but everybody knew, right? That there was corruption and Qatar was actually, you know, oh, you didn't do anything. You're fine in 2020. Um, but our prosecutors in the United States, which then begs to question, why do we have U.S. prosecutors involved? So weird. Um, that FIFA officials were receiving bribes in order to vote for Qatar. Well, no, you don't need that. You just see the opening show and then you know where the bribes freaking came from. Okay. China and Korea have vast amount of money. Vast amount of money. Like so much money. And so this just proves it. They just put their performer, right, Fahad, on stage with BTS that's like... One would say, well, why would they put in bribes to get the World Cup? Oh, we need tourism. We need money. You think the Qataris need money? No. It's called we need cover. Right? So this was all planned. Hence why U.S. prosecutors were involved. So you know who attended this World Cup and all sat together? Right. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, Palestine's Mahmoud Abbas, Rwanda's Paul Kagame, yeah, like all these world leaders like popped in. Where? They all arrived at the same time on Sunday in Doha, along with a bunch of other politicians. So this is just cover. Obviously, you're in cutter. You know how the saying goes, oh, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, in cutter, they cut you if you speak about it. So it's quite fascinating that they all arrive on Sunday. On Monday, Qatar says, oh, we just got a 25-year deal with China, right? And then they put out this whole freaking, you know, World Cup thing as a cover. 
it's like they need money. They had to build arenas. They had to hire people, right? And that opening ceremony, did you see all of them with their virtual virtual reality outfits? Yeah, that's what's up. They just need avatars. You don't even need to be there. These are all backdoor meetings in Qatar under the guise of, oh, this is FIFA. And first of all, why would an American be there? Nobody gives a crap about soccer, really. I love soccer, right? I love soccer. But other countries don't. Like, well, no. America doesn't. We're not very good at it. No offense. You know, even the women. The question is, why were there all these backdoor dealings? Why did they cheat to get it in Qatar? And why were they cleared in 2020 to say, okay, you can have it? Huh. Because they knew what was coming. Remember President Trump? <laughs> Remember this, right? They needed to get that cleared and get it done. It's so bizarre that no one is talking about the relationships that they have. It's just, it's just bizarre. It's bizarre. There, there were so many people there. It's crazy. Uh, Morgan Freeman was there um, and he was uh, posing with uh, Ghanim Al-Mufta, uh, Al you know, the guy with no legs, right? So th this is one of the biggest shows that just happened and it was complete cover for backdoor deals. So you're going to see a lot more come out. But the question is, what are these deals? Well, we just understood it. It's China. China, 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 China. I've been thinking that your fears about China are a bit exaggerated. Did you know that China has a new missile that can sink a U.S. naval carrier 900 miles off the coast? We have missiles, too. Did you also know that China has secretly been expanding its nuclear arsenal? But what do I know? I mean, that's just according to the Pentagon, our Pentagon. China has been loaning us billions upon billions of dollars. We are going to be owing them for the rest of our lives, and they will control us. Actually. This is like a G20 summit, but not a G20. It's like G's in the back door summit, right? Um, Sheikh Tamim bin, uh, bin Hamad Al Thani was there. Uh, that's uh, Qatar's emir, right? Uh, he actually spoke with President Vladimir Putin. Come on, guys. Do you really think this is about freaking soccer? Really? So the president's going to call about a soccer team? Paying attention now? So this is huge. And Qatar has one of the strongest security that you will ever see. You complain about being monitored 24-7? Yeah, they've got spy planes, spy drones on every freaking building. Okay? These people have been in that since forever in a day in Doha, right? So that's one to sit on. But China.
并就共同关心的问题交换意见，这是符合两国人民愿望的积极行动，这在中美两国关系史上是一个创举。President Nixon's visit to our country at the invitation of the Chinese government provides the leaders of the two countries. With an opportunity of meeting in person to seek the normalization of relations between the two countries, and also to exchange views on questions of concern to the two sides, this is a positive move in conformity with the desire of the Chinese and American peoples, and an event unprecedented in the history of the relations between China and the United States. The American people are a great people. The Chinese people are a great people. The peoples of our two countries have always been friendly to each other, but owing to reasons known to all, contacts between the two peoples were suspended for over 20 years. Now, through the common efforts of China and the United States, the gate to friendly contacts. Has finally been opened. Prime Minister, Chairman Chiang, and our Chinese and American friends. This magnificent banquet marks the end of our stay in the People's Republic of China. We have been here a week. This was the week that changed the world. As we look back over this week, we think of the boundless hospitality. That has been extended to all of us by our Chinese friends. We have today seen the progress of modern China. We have seen the matchless wonders of ancient China. We have seen also the beauty of the countryside, the vibrancy of a great city, Shanghai. All this we enjoyed enormously, but most important was. The fact that we had the opportunity to have talks with Chairman Mao, with Prime Minister Zhou Enlai, with the Foreign Minister, and other people in the government. The joint communique which we have issued today summarizes the results of our talks. But what we have said in that communique is not nearly as important as what we will do in the years ahead. To build a bridge across 16,000 miles and 22 years of hostility, which have divided us in the past, and what we have said today is that we shall build that bridge with Chairman Mao, with the Prime Minister, 
and with others with whom we have met, our talks have been characterized by frankness, by honesty, by determination, and above all, by mutual respect. Our communique indicates, as it should, some areas of difference. It also indicates some areas of agreement. To mention only one that is particularly appropriate here in Shanghai is the fact that this great city over the past has, on many occasions, been the victim of foreign aggression and foreign occupation. And we join the Chinese people, we the American people, in our dedication to this principle that never again shall foreign domination, foreign occupation be visited upon this city or any part of China or any independent country in this world. Mr. Prime Minister, our two peoples tonight hold the future of the world in our hands. And as we think of that future, we are dedicated to the principle that we can build a new world, a world of peace, a world of justice, a world of independence for all nations. And if we succeed in working together where we can find common ground, if we can find the common ground on which we can both stand, where we can build the bridge between us and build a new world, generations in the years ahead will look back and thank us for this meeting that we have held in this past week. And let the great Chinese people and the great American people be worthy of the hopes and ideals of the world for peace and justice and progress for all. I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes. But in all of my years of public life, I have never profit, 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 never profited from public service. I've earned every cent, every cent, every cent. And in all of my years public life, public life, I have never obstructed justice. I think too that I could say Suck it to me <laughs> That I welcome this kind of examination I just hope I have got to know Whether or not their president's a crook Well I'm not a crook What sucks Is that China Has Already taken over And this is just the icing on top. Back in the day, when one country wanted to take over another country, they had to beat them in a war. But now, it looks like a country might have found a way to take over another country with the stroke of a pen. 
China's recently been accused of trying to take over Uganda's Seoul International Airport if the East African country fails to pay a $200 million loan for the expansion of the site. At this rate, if Uganda fails to repay the loan, Uganda's only international airport will soon be a Chinese asset. In response to the public outcry over the loan agreement, the Chinese embassy in Uganda issued a statement saying, quote, not a single project in Africa has ever been confiscated by China because of failing to pay Chinese loans. Wait, China might be threatening to take Uganda's airport because of a loan that might not be paid? And, and I don't know, maybe it's just me, but that statement was not the most reassuring thing I've ever heard because we've never confiscated an airport? It's very different from we're never going to confiscate an airport. Meanwhile, Uganda has lost its only international airport that it had to China after it failed to repay its loan. Now, Uganda is the latest African nation to fall into China's debt trap and has had to give up one of its key national assets to China because it was not able to repay the installments of the loan. Like if you ask your spouse, promise me you'll never cheat on me. And she says, of course, I promise that up to now I have never cheated on you. Oh, she's going to cheat on you. And the thing is, the CCP, when they came into power in 1950, because of what we did, right? We created them by leaving them stiff in 1945. Under Mao, China had backed African liberation movements in an effort to advance Maoism, right? To offset, you know, all that commie Soviet stuff. And to combat American influence. They didn't want Soviet stuff. And they didn't want American influence. And if you ask a lot of people, right, about China's politics, they'll tell you, oh, well, it works for them. You know, that iron fist they use works for them, right? They'll tell you that. Tyranny. Tyranny called by any other name <laughs> tells you that it's tyranny. Like right now, we call ourselves a democracy. No, nope, it's tyranny. They call themselves the People's Republic. Nope, it's called tyranny. It's called tyranny. They've used, you know, and in, in, their, in their defense, right, in the CCP's defense, they've done a really good job upholding like a monarch, a monarchy, tyrannical dictatorship under the guise of a socialistic republic. It's just so weird. And it works for the Chinese, get this, because, you know, they've lived under empires for eons and eons, right? Democracy never lasts. Ask the Greeks. They supposedly invented democracy. Do you know how long that lasted? 200 years. So I guess America claiming it's a democracy? Well, I guess we've outdone the dar. We have to stop calling it a democracy, but anyway. So China. When Mao went in there, it was trying to cause commotion in the African nations by saying, oh, you need to get away from like the Soviets. Oh no, America's coming to take you over, which they were. But get this, China is the imperialist power in Africa. China is in Africa, but it's not trying to push Maoism anymore because Mao's gone, right? But it controls all the people, all the resources, right? They built the railroads uh, you know, in rural Ethiopia um, to down to Congo. They also built railways in Kenya that linked those countries up. $15.8 billion Chinese built railway. They've 
completely changed how their economy is. They've landed over, like, I think it's $150 billion to Africa. But what they did was they brought them to supermarkets, they built their infrastructure, and they have provided technical assistance. They had given them all their um, technology, which means that China reaps that. And trade between Africa and China has gone from $10 billion two decades ago to $200 billion in 2016. In fact, over 15% of African industrial production, which is about $500 billion, half a trillion, is nearly half of Africa's contracted construction market. That is being done by Chinese firms. Remember, they kept it dark for a reason, right? The Chinese kept it. So when the Chinese went in there, they were like, oh, you don't want these people? We'll come and help you. We'll fix it. We'll lend you money. Don't worry. But the thing is, all money has strings attached, right? China and the way they entered Africa is really, really important. China's behavior in Africa gives you the ability to see how it will act across other countries, like when it's sitting across the table to negotiate. And what China's doing in Africa doesn't uh, resonate very well with the rest of the world because Africa was left in the dark for, for a reason and they capitalized on that. They came in there with significant investments, with the ability to create infrastructure for them that was very sorely needed. Remember, we didn't even give them power. Why didn't GE go in there? Oh, that's right. But they're actually very abusive to them. The Zambian government once had told the, uh, the Guardian, I think it was back in 2005, 2006, that you know, he was like, oh, you know, the Indians that came from India were bad, but they weren't, you know, they, they were worse than the white people, but the Chinese are the worst, you know, because they just take more power and take our resources. It's like, yeah, so you knew it and you're still doing it. So whatever, right? The Chinese help produce their oil generating revenue. So they create the structure, but then they take some of the oil, right? They've put in Chinese technology. Where do you think Huawei is? South Sudan, which, you know, we're missing North Sudan for some reason, but nobody talks about that. Uh, Ethiopia and Kenya got loans from China. The Belt Road Initiative, the Chinese Belt Road Initiative, had given um, so much money for the Standard Gauge Railway, which is, you know, Kenya, Ethiopia, uh, you know, linking up on railways. And it connects to Djibouti as well. So it's like the Horn of Africa. So we got Djibouti, Ethiopia, and Kenya. And that was Ethiopia's first railway, first one. And that project on its own was about $5 billion. So it's super, super insane when you think about it that, you know, no one's paying attention because in their contract, it clearly says that if you default, we own you. They're literally, it's their second continent. That's Africa is China. 40 out of 54 countries in China, in, in, in Africa, participate in China's Belt and Road Initiative. Okay? And the missing piece is Turkey to link them all up to Europe and China will be making bank. 
China is actually very dependent on Africa for fossil fuels and other commodities. Um, it's 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 just insane. And you have to think, why is no one paying attention to them? Oh, that's right, because we were exploiting them for health reasons. So think about it for a second. If China has been doing this, taking over of a nation, if China <laughs> has been taking over a continent, let me rephrase that. Okay. We've just moved Interpol to South Africa, right? Which is on the African continent. China is embedded in at least 40 of the 54 countries there, having built all their infrastructure, right? The US has been watching this and we're supposed to be a global superpower, right? We are supposed to be a global superpower, but we've let them do this while we have been exploiting the Africans for human capital and medical experimentation along with the Europeans. So the whites, let's put it this way, because they say whites, the Indians from India, and then this is how Africans see it. It was the whites, which were the Westerners, the Indians from India and the Pakistanis, right? And then it was the Chinese. The Chinese are the most brutal, but they're everywhere. Remember how many times I've talked about, you know, that snake lady from the IMF, Lagarde, right? China is its own IMF. In their loans, they clearly put down that you forfeit your sovereignty if you fail to pay it. So why would the U.S. exploit human beings, human capital, and health and experiment on people while the infrastructure is going all to China? Oh, that's right. Because like I told you, we created China. We created the CCP. I repeat, we created the CCP. We created the CCP in the 40s when we did not provide them the weapons to liberate themselves. We didn't want Mao, but we created the CCP. And that's real history. And people forget it. Real history. I've said this before. Good evening. I would like to read a joint communique which is being simultaneously issued in Peking at this very moment by the leaders of the People's Republic of China. A joint communique on the establishment of diplomatic relations between the United States of America and the People's Republic of China, January 1st, 1979. The United States of America and the People's Republic of China have agreed to recognize each other and to establish diplomatic relations as of January the 1st, 1979. The United States recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China as a sole legal government of China. Within this context, the people of the United States will maintain cultural, commercial, and other unofficial relations with the people of Taiwan. My fellow Americans, I'm sure you've heard that Nancy and I are traveling a long way from home this week. We've already flown more than 9,000 miles, stopping off at the beautiful islands of Hawaii to visit the citizens of our 50th state, 
then across the international date line to Guam, where the rays of each sunrise first touched the stars and stripes. Then on to our primary destination, China, one of the world's oldest civilizations and a country of great importance in today's Pacific community of nations. This is our second trip to Asia in the last six months. It demonstrates our awareness of America's responsibility as a Pacific leader in the search for regional security and economic well-being. The stability and prosperity of this region are of crucial importance to the United States. The nations comprising the Pacific Basin represent our fastest growing trading markets. Many say that the 21st century will be the century of the Pacific. Our relations with China have continued to develop through the last four administrations, ever since President Nixon made his historic journey here in 1972. In 1978, the Chinese leadership decided to chart a new course for their country, permitting more economic freedom for the people in an effort to modernize their economy. Not surprisingly, the results have been positive. Today, China's efforts to modernize, foster the spirit of enterprise, open its doors to the West, and expand areas of mutual cooperation while opposing Soviet aggression make it a nation of increasing importance to America and to prospects for peace and prosperity in the Pacific. The noise of gunfire rose from all over the center of Peking. It was unremitting. On the streets leading down to the main road to Tiananmen Square, furious people stared in disbelief at the glow in the sky, listening to the sound of shots. Heading down the road was a hazardous business, but hundreds of people cheered as buses were set alight and army trucks caught fire too. They yelled and shouted, and then, as troop lorries were seen moving down the road, there was gunfire from those lorries. The troops have been firing indiscriminately, but still, there are thousands of people on the streets who will not move back. The bicycle rickshaws scooped up the injured. Others were shunted onto bikes and pedaled to hospital. Many were carried away by frantic local residents. There was confusion and despair among those who could hardly credit that their own army was firing wildly at them. Many were bystanders, perhaps naive about the savagery of the situation. Indeed, it was hard at times to grasp that this army was launching into an unarmed civilian population as if charging into battle. From Tiananmen Square, the sound of gunfire sounded like a battle, but it was one-sided. A line of soldiers was strung out facing a huge crowd. The air was filled with shouts of fascists, stop killing. We were in the line facing the troops. They were about 250 yards away. Young people were singing the Internationale to a background of gunfire. After hours of shooting, and facing a line of troops. The crowd is still here. They're shouting, stop the killing and down with the government. A huge volley of shots just as I left the front line caused panic. The young man in front of me fell dead. I fell over him. Two others were killed yards away. Two more people lay wounded on the ground near me. Ambulances screamed up to the troop line and were turned away. They couldn't get to the square. Two ambulance drivers were shot and injured. 
Earlier, we'd been driving at the back of the Forbidden City, the old part of Peking, near the square. We picked up a woman with a bullet in the head and took her to the nearby children's hospital, into a scene of near mayhem. Casualties were arriving every few seconds, on bikes, rickshaws, park benches, carried in, all with gunshot wounds. Housewives, elderly residents, people shot while sitting in their homes. The operating theatre was overflowing, many of the staff in tears. In 20 minutes, 40 seriously injured were brought for emergency surgery. Two were already dead. In the streets, many came up to us, shaking with anger and disbelief and fear. Many were terrified, saying there would be retribution. There was not one voice on the streets which did not express despair and rage. Tell the world, they said to us. Leslie. Mr. President, back to China. Uh, there are reports tonight that the government there has begun rounding up the student leaders who face, at the very least, persecution at the most possibly charges of treason and whatever punishment that will bring. You have talked tonight about your strong desire to keep this relationship going and to keep the dialogue and all our business as usual moving forward. If the, uh, all the, up, excuse the interruption. Well, except for the military. Yeah, yeah, okay except for the military zone. If we find out that the people who perpetrated the killings in Tiananmen Square and who are rounding up these students are running the government, can the United States maintain fairly normal relationships with them given our aim to foster human rights and promote democracy? We've made it extraordinarily difficult, but the question is so hypothetical that I'm gonna avoid answering it directly, but anything that uh, codifies uh, the acceptance of, uh, of brutality or lack of respect for human rights will make things much more difficult. There's no question about that. During the past few days, elements of the Chinese army have been brutally suppressing popular and peaceful demonstrations in China. There's been widespread and continuing violence, many casualties, and many deaths. And we deplore the decision to use force and I now call on the Chinese leadership publicly, as I have in private channels, to avoid violence and to return to their previous policy of restraint. This is not the time for an emotional response, but for a reasoned, careful action that takes into account both our long-term interests and recognition of a complex internal situation in China. There clearly is turmoil within the ranks of the political leadership as well as the political for the People's Liberation Army. And now is the time to look beyond the moment to important enduring and enduring aspects of this vital relationship for the United States. Indeed, the budding of democracy, which we have seen in recent weeks, owes much to the relationship we have developed since 1972. And it's important at this time to act in a way that will encourage the further development and deepening of the positive elements of that relationship and the process of democratization. It would be a tragedy for all if China were to pull back to its pre-1972 era of isolation and repression. This is an historic moment. We have in this past year made great progress in ending the long era of conflict and Cold War. We have before us the opportunity to forge 
for ourselves and for future generations, a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. morning. It's always good to have Chairman Greenspan back at the White House, and I'm especially pleased that he has come today to join me in voicing his support <clears throat> for permanent normal trade relations with China. We all know that when Chairman Greenspan talks, the world listens. I just hope that Congress is listening today. Many members remain undecided. And we are doing everything we possibly can to round up each and every potential vote. All the former presidents support it, along with former secretaries of state, defense, trade, transportation, national security advisors, chairs of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, religious leaders, many of the courageous people in China fighting for human rights and the rule of law. After Tiananmen, human rights in China became a major concern for U.S. officials including the Democratic Party's 1992 candidate for president, Bill Clinton. And yet, pressured by elites in both parties, instead of pushing back, Bill Clinton gave the Chinese Communists its biggest foreign policy win since Nixon's 1972 opening. In 1994, Bill Clinton delinked human rights from trade with China. Today, I would like to announce a series of important decisions regarding the United States policy toward China. I have decided that the United States should renew most favored nation trading status toward China. This decision, I believe, offers us the best opportunity to lay the basis for long-term sustainable progress in human rights and for the advancement of our other interests with China. When people talk about the global economy, what they really mean is cheap labor and free trade. The globalist leaders in the West understood that communist China would be the centerpiece of a global economic system. Why? Because of a large, cheap pool of labor under the control of an authoritarian regime. And so in 1994, Bill Clinton's China policy decoupled human rights and trade. In 2000, Clinton granted China most favored nation status in trade. And this led to a key moment in U.S.-China relations, China's 2001 accession to the World Trade Organization. And so, what the West had been dreaming of for decades, this cheap pool of labor would be the centerpiece of this new order, finally became true. What it meant was that people were going to get rich. It was a place for the American establishment to build wealth and power without anyone looking over their shoulder. The U.S. government was signaling that trade with China was more important than human rights in China. America's public health elites took notice as well. Not only was China known for its human rights abuses, China also held a shockingly cavalier attitude toward risky scientific and medical experimentation. 
human rights reports abound about China's so-called biotourism industry, that they harvest organs from living subjects, in particular Falun Gong and the Uyghurs, that they kill people to take their organs. The Western political establishment is well aware of these reports. For over a decade, the People's Republic of China has stood publicly accused of acts of cruelty and wickedness that match the cruelty and wickedness of medieval torturers and executioners. If the accusations are true, thousands of innocents have been killed to order, having the physical integrity of their beings, their bodies, cut open while still alive for their kidneys, livers, hearts, lungs, cornea and skin to be removed and turned into commodities for sale. Doctors killed those innocent people simply because they pursued truthfulness, compassion and forbearance in the case of Falun Gong practitioners and lived lives of healthy exercise and meditation that was seen as dangerous to the interests and objectives of the totalitarian state of the People's Republic of China. We interrupt this program in order to bring you the following address from the President of the United States. Good evening, my fellow Americans. As all of you are aware, exactly one week ago, the Chinese government seized and refused to surrender a U.S. Navy EP-3 surveillance plane along with its crew of 24. What followed was six days of intense, round-the-clock negotiations with Chinese officials in an attempt to resolve this situation. All of us around this table understand diplomacy takes time. Uh, but there is a point, the longer it goes, there's a point at which our relations with China could become damaged. Unfortunately, these efforts were unsuccessful. Finally, early this evening, I made a bold decision to meet with the Chinese President Jiang Zemin alone, one-on-one, -on -one, no Dick Cheney, <laughs> no State Department officials, no military advisors, no international law specialists, no China scholars, no translators. Is there any more that you can do or say, sir? Every day that goes by increases the potential that our relations with China could be damaged. And our hope is that this matter gets resolved quickly. Just the two of us, face to face, mano a mano, <laughs> and to keep at it until we work this thing out. We're, we're, working, we're working behind the scenes. We've got every diplomatic channel open. We're in discussions with the Chinese. That was the breakthrough. In less than 20 minutes, President Jiang and I had signed an agreement. An agreement, I'm proud to say, that both averts an international crisis and leaves American honor and dignity intact. Here are its chief points. Number one, the United States government sincerely, profusely, and objectively apologizes to China <laughs> for this incident. It was entirely our fault and we did a bad thing. <laughs> Two, the Navy aircraft will be returned immediately following its complete disassembly and examination 
by North Korean intelligence. <laughs> Three, upon its return to the U.S., the plane will be sold to the government of Libya. <laughs> with all pre proceeds going to the Palestine Liberation Organization. Four, all secret documents found on board the aircraft will be surrendered to the United States. The Chinese will keep photocopies. <laughs> Number five, for its part, the Chinese government has agreed not to share these photocopies with Iran, Iraq, or other rogue nations. Although sharing photocopies of photocopies is permitted, <laughs> provided they are readable. I fought hard for that one. Six, under no circumstances will photocopies of photocopies of photocopies be allowed. It is now time for our troops to come home so that our relationship does not become damaged. Seven, our 24 U.S. Navy servicemen and servicewomen, I'm happy to say, are already back on American soil. After a reunion with their families, they will be returned to China <laughs> to begin serving their 90-day sentences for espionage at a Chinese labor camp. Definitely think Sean is a hostage there. I think President Bush should have given him some type of an ultimatum. I don't actually think we can try to be too tough because the Chinese are going to want to save face. So if we play hardball with them, I think they're going to make it that much more difficult. Number eight, Chinese President Jiang Zemin and his wife will have full use of the Bush Vacation Ranch in McCallum, Texas. <laughs> From Memorial Day through Labor Day, with the exception of Fourth of July weekend and two weekends in August. President Bush and Laura Bush will pay for utilities. Mr. Zhang will be responsible for pool maintenance. <laughs> Point nine, General Colin Powell has agreed to resign as Secretary of State and to surrender his driver's license and credit cards. Beg your pardon? The rhetoric between Taiwan and China over the referendum getting alarming No, not alarming. Um, we hope that both sides will uh, realize where their interests lie and um, be careful about what they say. And we reaffirm to uh, the Chinese again today, and we will when Premier Wen is here next week, that uh, we remain totally committed to our One China policy, founded on the Free Communiques, the Taiwan Relations Act, and uh, uh, we do not support an independence uh, movement, and we do not support independence for Taiwan. Thank you. On June 1st, he will begin serving his sentence at a Chinese labor camp. <laughs> 10. The Chinese government has agreed to officially designate the first week in August Ed Tall Jones Appreciation Week. <laughs> 11. Yankees outfielder Daryl Strawberry will voluntarily enter a drug treatment facility. I know a lot of people want to send blankets or water. Just send your cash. One of the things that uh, President I'll do is to make sure your money is spent wisely. <laughs> Located where? In a Chinese labor camp. <laughs> Number 12, don't mess with Texas. 
13, don't ever mess with Texas. 14, live from New York, it's Saturday night! We can't predict with certainty what the future will bring. But we can be certain about the issues that will define our times. And we also know this. The relationship between the United States and China will shape the 21st century, which makes it as important as any bilateral relationship in the world. Would America ever go to war with China over the South China Seas? Well, I, I'm not going to uh, hypothesize about uh, going to war with China. The fact is, is that uh, my administration has maintained a very constructive relationship with the Chinese government. Uh, we believe very much in a peaceful, rising China. Uh, we think we have much more to fear from a, a weak, chaotic China than a China that continues to progress and uh, fulfill the, the uh, aspirations of its people. But there are areas of genuine tension. Uh, South China Sea is an example of where we think China is resorting to the old style of might makes right as opposed to working uh, through international law and international norms to establish uh, claims and to resolve disputes. China, 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 China. Now, we have observed many one-liners and scripted outrage that are delivered, haven't we, my fellow citizens? At almost every corner that we turn, by any selected official in any office, specifically Congress and the Senate. They pretend to have outrage. And it's always on their time. Why now? Why didn't they talk about the laptop then? Why now? Why not talk about other things then? Why now? Why talk about the certification of the machines now and not then? No one talks about how they have this fake outrage about the wrongs that globalization has been committing. When was there a moment of peace in our history? Take a think about it. Was there ever a conclusion of peace in your lifetime? What about your parents' lifetime? Maybe your grandparents? It was all an illusion, right? Not only against you, my amazing United States of America, but to other nations around the world. And their history is longer than ours. I'm sure that they admit in theory though they do not put it in practice all the scripted things they say indeed that the object both of our words and deeds must be to check and chastise the arrogance of such yet I perceive that all our interests have been completely betrayed and sacrificed. I'm afraid it is an ominous thing to say, but yet the truth 
truth. Even if all who address the people wanted to propose truth as a mode, it would be silenced. In Congress and the Senate, they all want something to pass. Measures that are bound to bring our nation's affairs into the worst possible plight, if done in truth, exposing the underlinging and the underlingings and the underlying interests. And I thought, I don't think our nation could be in a worse condition than it is today. China is going to eat our lunch? Come on, man. They can't even figure out how to deal with the, 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 the fact that they have this great division between the China Sea and the mountains in the east, I mean in the west. They can't figure out how they're going to deal with the corruption that exists within the system. I mean, I, you know, they're not bad folks, folks, but guess what? They're not a, they're, they're not, not a competition for us. We have the highest trade deficit China with Mexico. China ate your lunch. That right, ate percent. And, and, China and, ate your lunch, uh, Joe. And but, no wonder but, your son goes in and he takes out what he takes out billions uh, of dollars, takes out billions of dollars to manage. He makes millions of dollars. And also, while we're at it. President Xi and Vladimir Putin have met on the same day that you and I are sitting here in the White House. And I wonder if this is a new, more complicated Cold War, how do you manage it? I don't think it is a new, more complicated Cold War. Look, when, um, when President Xi invited Putin to Beijing during the Olympics where they had their meeting and the combination of the new relationship, not long after that, I called President Xi not to threaten at all, just to say to him, we've met many times. And I said that if you think that Americans and others will continue to invest in China based on your violating the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, I think you're making a gigantic mistake, but that's for your decision to make. Thus far, there's no indication that they've put forward weapons or other things that Russia has wanted. So. Uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say anymore. Oh, I wish you would. No. You have said, talked a lot about security guarantees, and now we've seen your proposals. You also say you have no intention of invading Ukraine. So will you guarantee unconditionally that you will not invade Ukraine or any other sovereign country? Or does that depend on how negotiations go? And another question, what is it do you think that the West does not understand about Russia or about your intentions? Thank you. Speaking of the security guarantees and what it will depend upon, or if something will depend upon the negotiations, our actions will not depend on the negotiation. They will depend on the unconditional compliance with the Russian security demands today and in the historical context. In this sense, we have made it clear that any further NATO movement to the east is unacceptable. There is nothing unclear about this. We are not deploying our missiles over at the borders of the U.S. No. On the other hand, the U.S. is deploying its missiles close to our home, on, there on the porch of our house. So, 
Are we demanding something excessive? We're simply asking them not to deploy their attack systems over at our home. What is so unusual or peculiar about that? So what would the Americans think if we, for example, decided to come to the border between, say, Canada and the United States or Mexico and simply deploy our missiles over there? Well, does, did Mexico and the U.S. never have any territorial disputes? What about California? What about Texas? Did you forget about that? While the global order is seizing cities, plotting against our nation and retaining many of our nation's possessions and inflicting injury on everybody in the world. You, the people, even tolerate those that represent us as speakers in a position of office that repeatedly assert in the House and Senate that the real aggressors are the people. You're the enemy. They build barricades. They have security and hold the people at bay. And the power, arbitrary power, is drawn from the very people that they are claiming Instead, you identify patriotic Americans as suspects. And I would note there's a pattern of this. You hear nothing from them in regards to the destruction of Europe and Africa. Has the global order not robbed them of their free constitutions? Their sovereignty setting up treacheries in order to enslave them, not city by city, but nation by nation. Are not tyrannies already established in Europe, in Asia, and in Africa? Under their breath and with tone, explicitly claiming that they are at peace with those who are willing to peace. obey them. You would be nothing sure of madness were you brave king your valiant troops to perish. Tyrants are at peace with you as long as you obey. There's much our cultures could share. You are not the enemy our culture with you all as long as you obey. For there is grave, grave danger that anyone who proposes and urges that we shall defend ourselves may incur the charge of having provoked the war. Submission. Now that's a bit of a problem. See, rumor has it the Athenians have already turned you down. And if those philosophers and, uh, Boy lovers, I found that kind of nerve. That we must be diplomatic. And of course, Spartans have the reputation to consider. Choose your next words carefully, Leonidas. They may be your last as king. Madman. You're a madman. Earth and water. But you'll find plenty of both down there. No man, Persian or Greek, no man threatens a messenger. You bring the crowns and heads of conquered kings to my city steps. You insult my queen. You threaten my people with slavery and death. Oh, I've chosen my words carefully, Persian. Perhaps you should have done the same. This is blasphemy. This is madness. 
madness. This is Sparta! Replacement teams here, sir. Right. Come on through. Another 20 minutes, we're gonna start looking for you guys. God, it's really something up here. You look a mess, sir. Yeah? You turn next, Ginsburg. Okay, all right, I'll see you in 24. See you tomorrow. What was that she was saying now? Oh, so you used to hear her chant all night long. Oh, money, pod, me on. Oh, money, pod, me on. Over the plants? Yeah, she'd cup her hands over those seeds and she'd chant by the hour. She grew the most beautiful wandos you ever saw, man. Primo stuff, resin city. Stand clear. Been very worried about you guys. The roads must be a bear, huh? What roads? Visibility. Visibility bullshit. You guys haven't been on time for the last six months. Well, I wrote you guys up in the logbook. Yeah, you're a prince, Bevan. Good night, gentlemen. So that was like Sensomelia, right? Sensomelia. This grass made Thai stick taste like oregano. Lay you out flat, man. Got a red light, sir. What up? Number eight, warhead alarm. Give a thump with your finger. Alarm reset. with a red dash alpha message in two parts. Break, break. Red dash alpha. Stand by to copy message. Alpha. Standing by. Romeo, Oscar, November, Charlie, Tango, Tango, Lima, Alpha. Authentication. Two, two, zero, zero, four, zero, Delta, Lima. I have a valid message. 
Stand by to authenticate. I agree with authentication also, sir. Enter launch code. Entering launch code. Launch order confirmed. Holy shit. Target selection complete. Time on target sequence complete. Yield selection complete. Begin countdown. T minus 60. All right, let's do it. Insert launch key. Stand by. Launch key inserted. Roger. On my mark. Rotate launch key to set. Three, two, one. Mark. T minus 50. Enable missiles. Number one, enable. Two, enable. Three, enable. Four, five, Straight to somebody in the goddamn six, phone. Seven, eight, nine. Ten. All missiles enabled. Minus 30. Get me wing command post on your direct That's line. That's not the correct procedure, Captain. Zach. Try SAC headquarters on the HF. That's not the correct procedure. Screw the procedure. I want somebody on the goddamn phone before I kill 20 million people. T minus 20. I got nothing here. They might have been knocked out already. Right. On my mark, rotate launch keys to launch. Roger, ready 15, to go to launch. 14, 13, 13 12, 12, 11. 11. Seven, six, five. Sir, we have a launch four, order. Three. Put your hand on the key, two, sir. One. Launch. Sir, we are at launch. Turn your key. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Turn your key, sir. They thought of that. Except on the assumption that bribery and corruption of our representation throughout our nation would occur. They chastise us and punish us. We detect that they are deceiving us when we speak the truth. They went so far to set the offenders' names on a list at the Department of Homeland Security. SIOP. S-I-O. Not psychological warfare, but the actual plan, the end game, the actual script, the destruction of our world with nuclear energy. I don't want to set the world. I just want to start 
a flame in your heart. In my heart, I have but one desire. Well, that's pretty heavy stuff. So the PSYOP, S-I-O-P, is evident. And why can, I, can they not pull that trigger? Why has the likelihood of that happening not happened? President Trump had a good relationship with all nations. And I'd like to also restate that man sold rice to China. Fact check me. Now this is a story, a true story of what would have, could have, maybe can also, of a time of disaster looming, where the world today seems to be on the brink of collapse, because it is. But around the world, there are brave, selfless, and willing to risk everything to save others, people that exist or don't. They work together, pooling their skills and resources in concert, sometimes with zero communication. The plan to save the day is not a plan that you mind map or discuss with many. I mean, as an architect of such a fantastic civilization, or shall I say, a people. Organizing in the way you see cannot be. Afrokrama. It's called like a, it seems to come to the, the cream of the crop comes to the top when it's hot in the cup. And the actions that you see from many, moms, dads, young and old, from every nation, some even playing the roles of villains or compliant ones. They face danger and difficulty head on every day. There are people that have lost their lives with the hope of a brighter tomorrow, with the hope of a better future, with the hope of peace through truth. Every single action, no matter how small or minute, provides that, provides us the avenue to join. And now while many may be inspired by those old-timey-wimey movies of history, of blood and war, we're past that. If it gets to that, the psyop will be implemented. So to all of you out there that may be feeling hopeless or overwhelmed, I want you to know that always exists. I remember it was always the bottom of Pandora's box. And I guess maybe that hope is what drove people to the top. And when I say to the top, not into the spotlight, there are many faceless and nameless people working tirelessly. I had a conversation, very short one, with someone that's considered a genius, but 
their IQ is 20 points less than mine, but they're considered a real genius according to the standards of society. And I realized that a mind that is controlled or trained will always see one thing, self-preservation. I think the real geniuses understand that self-preservation is a quality that needs to be discharged. Locals to be able to access it with no interruptions for me, any glitches or graphics for your leisure. Sometimes putting stories that have been told before in an order that is understandable is necessary so that the people can see. What's the point of having all these stories everywhere, all disconnected? It seems like the right voices are coming out, and those voices are yours. You are building tomorrow. Every moment that goes by is history. I believe I had this conversation with someone, and I said it so nicely, where... I iterated exactly how we should be looking at time at this very moment. Things never go back. When things happen, when an occurrence occurs, you must take care of that situation right then and there. Because that's a missed moment. Your kids, they grow up. Their youth is gone. It's only a memory. Dreams become reality, but nightmares can manifest too. We write history ourselves every single day by the small and big decisions we make. And that ink never runs dry. Well, your ink specifically never runs dry until your story is complete. As all of us game, <laughs> gather together and aim for the right things and unite, there is no failure. Right now, this global organization that has been enslaving nations for decades, I would say close to a century, has deployed four approaches, and they're all coming to the point. Coalition building. Guerrilla warfare, information warfare, and external support. But at the same time, as of 2014, publicly and visibly to the whole world, Every man, woman, and child that has wished to find a moment in history where there was peace, where there was calm, is using the same methods. They're building coalitions, groups, potlucks, internet groups, discussions, informal think tanks, Nations are coming together to form their own coalitions. I mean, BRICS is one example to oppose the global organization. 
This coalition is formed through diplomatic channels and by finding common ground on shared grievances against the global giants. And they pool their resources to create a united front against the organization, but not so fast. Covert operations through guerrilla warfare tactics against this global movement, sabotaging their supply lines and causing chaos to what they considered pacified, but have now become enemy lines. Information warfare. We are the news now. The mainstream media is no longer to the many that are awakening slowly. Important. To the influencers propped by many, also not important. Propaganda is not having the effects it used to. Vogue magazine lines bird cages, nobody cares. There are many out there still dancing to the siren song that has enchanted them to abandon who they really are. Exposing the truth has been a difficult task. It's quite deadly. Rebelling, your riots and, 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 and rallies and protests aren't working because they're just open for their guerrilla warfare tactics. Unity. It's happening. Slowly but surely, it's happening. Joe Biden's extremely frustrated that Obama's calling the shots in his White House. It's all coming to the surface now. There's no stopping it. That's because Rome has fallen. I mean, you may not hear the thud right away, but they did tell you that you were an underdog. How are you the underdog? Mm. Now, I bid you goodbye for today because tomorrow I'll be dropping some serious receipts on people spying on my president during his campaign, during his presidency, and right now as we speak. This ne never ceases to amaze me. Never ceases to amaze me. Why do they hate him so much? Because if wars are created with lies and truth can bring peace, Julian Assange. And let's all remember to keep Julian Assange in our prayers as he's still in jail. London Bridge is falling down. Rome is falling. God bless.